Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Tom Siebel. Tom was a pioneer in the topic of customer relationship management, founding Siebel Systems, which focused on that very topic, CRM, in 1993. He would sell that company to Oracle in 2006 for nearly $6 billion. He founded C3AI in early 2009, and that company has become a pioneer in the artificial intelligence space. I look forward to speaking with him about the progress he's seen in artificial intelligence, generally speaking, the evolution of C3AI more specifically, his views on the economy in 2023 and beyond, and I'd like to better understand what motivates him at this stage of his career. Tom Siebel, welcome back to Technovation. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you, Peter. But first, a quick word from our partner, Adyen, and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What Adyen did and what we do is sort of really do the backend plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment, but it's, hey, how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases? Thanks, Cameron. And now on to the interview. Tom, I, I, I have to, uh, in, in speaking with somebody like yourself, who's been such a pioneer in the topic of artificial intelligence, and we'll certainly get into some depth in the, the company that you run uh, in that very space, I thought we'd begin with your own a point of view on the evolution of AI and where we are in that over, overall evolution. And we're, we're, how much progress have we made and, and uh, how much progress is there yet to make? Well, we think about enterprise AI uh, in the application of AI technology to business processes and business applications. And so that might be a little bit mundane, but it's really quite revolutionary. So rather than talking about deep learning or supervised learning or talking about the uniqueness of various types of machine learning or algorithms or natural language processing processes, rather than focus on that, which we do in great depth, uh, what we've been focusing on is basically making enterprise application software predictive. So let me talk about what that means. So we, we began the so enterprise application software, as we think of it today, um, it is we began developing this in the early 80s at places like Oracle and uh, SAP uh, and later PeopleSoft, Siebel Systems and other places. And what we did invariably is we took a relational database system, which was the persistence technology of choice in that era. On top of that, we built sets of tools that would allow us to represent those data uh, that we stored in the relational database system in forms and screens and reports. 
And then we use those tools to build applications to address business problems like ERP, um, CRM, uh, supply chain, manufacturing. And that turned out to be a pretty good idea. I mean, this is roughly a half a trillion dollar business today, enterprise application software, and it would be virtually impossible to run an enterprise of any nature without ERP systems, be it SAP or Oracle or PeopleSoft or some you know um, smaller product that meets the needs of a middle market. Now, so these systems handle our accounting and they allow us to um, comply with uh, government regulations and managerial reporting. And they report, for example, they with 2020 hindsight, you know, what our inventory levels were 30 days ago or 180 days ago, or what our cash balances were, or how much fraud took place, or the breakdowns took place in our supply chain, or, um, you know, inventory and supply chain happens to be a particularly hot button now. And if you look at a company like Boeing, you know, last time I checked, Boeing was roughly a $60 billion commercial aircraft manufacturer. And they have a supply chain for, let's say, the Boeing 777. There are, you know, a million components in that bill of materials. And that supply chain goes from someplace in South Carolina where they assemble the plane all the way to Shenzhen. And we need to be able for, and so we need to be able to report for that product line exactly how many parts, ball bearings, flap actuators, transistors, flight management systems, engines, what have you, we have in the supply chain uh, at any given instant. And if we don't at any, you know, when we close the books in any period, and if we don't do that, we're not in compliance with the law. And so by the time you add that up for say 777, 787, 747, 737, 757, 767, 707, it's a lot of parts. Now, Okay, so this is a um, roughly a half a trillion dollar business today, and it is um, there. It, it is very retrospective, and it allows us to report to the board at Verizon or Bank of America, okay, what our customer churn was, which is a very important metric for these guys, or for a bank or any financial institution. It allows us to report what our uh, fraudulent monetary events were, like anti money laundering, which is a regulatory requirement uh and then if we don't comply with that you know the the where we report you know how many aml events happened in our financial institution in the last reporting period and should we get out of compliance with that ceo gets to rewrite his resume and the uh the company like deutsche bank or whoever it is gets another 10 billion dollar fine or a billion dollar fine. Now, the way that we think about enterprise AI is that we we spent about a billion dollars and a decade building a software stack that allows companies to design, develop, provision, operate a very large scale commercial industrial uh, predictive analytics applications for manufacturing and aerospace, telecommunications, precision health, uh, travel transportation, uh, defense, uh, what what ha what have you? Now, what we're doing is basically we're taking this large wealth of applications that are out there in ERP like SAP and Oracle, or CRM like Oracle, which is Siebel and SAP and ServiceNow and Salesforce, or HR applications like um, PeopleSoft at Oracle or uh, the other uh, PO Workday. And we make these applications 
predictive. So we're not replacing these applications, but we're making them predictive. So in addition to knowing how many parts I might have, which is kind of interesting, it'll tell us exactly how many parts do I need in each bin in the next six months to meet the demand function so I can deliver on time in full. That's really interesting. Okay. And while it might be kind of interesting to know what your customer return was six months ago, it's much more interesting to know which customer would make it predictive. It'll tell us which customers are going to leave us in the next 180 days so we can take action at Verizon or at Bank of America or wherever it might be to save those customers. Um, you know, rather than tell us what our what our fraud our incidences of fraud were, okay, using predictive analytics, AI applied to the enterprise, we can identify fraudulent transactions as they occur in real time and stop them. Um, so that that is the nature. So what we're doing is we're taking this great wealth of applications that are out there and we're making them predictive. And I will argue that. Uh, so this is predicted to be a $600 billion software market in the next few years. I believe we're the world's leading provider of this stuff. And I would argue, Peter, that five years from now, there is no board of directors that is going to tolerate a CEO standing up and giving a presentation that says, this is where our supply chain broke down. Okay. Hard stop. That's not going to do it. Everyone I know. You know, how did you identify the, the weaknesses in the supply chain and how did you remediate it so we didn't have the breakdown? Okay, there's no there there's no board of directors that's going to tolerate a presentation that shows that this the these was where this is where we had supply chain problem, so we're unable to deliver okay products on time in full to meet the needs of our customers. See Boeing for details. Um, you know, at uh, you know, there's no way, no how the board of directors at Deutsche Bank, okay, is going to tolerate yet another CEO standing up and reporting that this is where we had, you know, the, the anti money laundering events from the the Russians or whoever it might be. No way, no how. And so those boards are going to mandate that we use these predicted applications to prevent fraud to prevent customer churn, and to make sure we meet the needs of our customers. So this is what we do. This is the size of the market. And uh, I think we're in the first half of the first inning of what is going to be a extraordinarily large opportunity to make businesses more efficient, make them more energy efficient, uh, deliver products and services uh, to more satisfied customers at lower cost with less environmental impact, uh, to the benefit of shareholders and society at large. That's a, a fantastic overview, Tom. Thank you for it. And, and I want to uh, take a quick step back now. Um, all that you've described makes an awful lot of sense. You founded C3AI in 09, before the cloud or our AI really were uh, wide areas of focus for enterprises. And I, I wonder, where did the prescience come from? What, what were you seeing at that time that led you to believe that this opportunity would be any, anything like what you've just described? Well, Peter, just like you did when you founded your podcast in 2008. In 2008, honestly, nobody knew what a podcast was. Okay, and today, podcasts are everywhere. They're everything, and they're a huge deal. And you, you saw it coming, and you were just ahead of your time. Okay, now I've been in the information technology business now about four decades, a little more than that. And, you know, I've seen the changes from mainframes to mini computers, to personal computers, to cloud computing, to, you know, phone, you know, smartphones and what have you. And, you know, as we looked at the world, 
in 2007 and 2008, we thought about, well, what is happening next? It occurred to us the next big step function in information technology was going to be about elastic cloud computing. This would be, you know, Microsoft Azure and AWS and elastic cloud and GCP, Google platform. Uh, and that it was going to be about elastic cloud computing, big data, the internet of things, which has happened, which has become huge. And that these technologies in turn would enable us to build classes of applications that were previously impossible. And this is in the area of, of applications that would, you know, with high levels of accuracy, predict what was going to happen in the future. Well, a machine is going to fail, a customer is going to leave, a person is going to get, uh, is going to be diagnosed with an illness. And so now we can predict these things, okay, in advance, okay, and, and, and basically alter the future before the problem happens. And uh, so we set about work beginning in January 2009 and spent the next decade and about a billion dollars building a, a very rich technology stack that without getting into all the techie, techie, techie talk, okay, there's about a thousand microservices there that do everything from data aggregation to data fusion to, you know, data persistence to machine learning services, data science services, and data visualization that allow us to um, go into companies that have large installations of ERP systems and CRM systems and manufacturing systems and supply chain systems, which is would be every company in the world or healthcare systems and make those applications predictive. So that was the big idea. And uh, that's what we do today at global scale. And describe, you're already uh, through both of your answers, describing a bit, of course, of the offering. Uh, talk a bit about the C3AI suite uh, and how, um, you know, how it's continuing to evolve. Well, so after we built the platform, you know, the platform is a tool set that somebody might use to build applications. Well, we're finding that, you know, I mean, nobody wants a tool set, okay? They, nobody wants to, to build their own. It's like, you know, it's like, imagine that you, you get a vision that a customer, you or I wanted to buy a vehicle, you know, for our family to like drive to work, drive our kids to school and go get groceries, okay? And if somebody were to set us, you know, three car loads of like snap-on tools, okay? And, and, and bars of steel and nuts and bolts so we could build our own car. I don't think that would be much of value because we'd rather run down to the Chevy dealership or the Volkswagen dealership or the Tesla dealership and just buy one and drive it away and go get groceries, right? So the initial, initially what we see in information technology with every new phase, whether it was relational database, whether it was ERP, CRM, supply chain, everybody used to, whether they started, everybody tried to build that stuff themselves uh, and it didn't work out so well. As it relates to enterprise AI, people initially tried to buy tool sets, like you'll remember the open, there used to be a lot of, a lot of noise about the open source uh, Apache Hadoop stack, that kind of went away. There was something called Cloudera that kind of went away. There's something called Pivotal that kind of went away. And all the hyperscalers, uh, AWS, uh, Google, and Azure were setting tools so people could build these applications. We believed that what people wanted was the applications themselves. So we built the stack, and then we used the, after we built the, 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 this kind of billion dollar piece of work, 
We use that to build a family of applications for the banking industry, for the healthcare industry, for the telecommunications industry, for the manufacturing industry, oil and gas, utilities, and what have you, that address all those value chains from beginning to end to allow to make them all those applications predictive. Now, so today we have 42 turnkey applications that solve problems like anti-money laundering, solve problems like you know, predictive maintenance for the grid. So it can identify device failure before it happens. So the transformer doesn't blow up in Paradise, California. Okay. And incinerate 2000 people. Okay. And, and so we can bring these things happening in fact, you know, in advance and, and, you know, place the transformer before it fails. Uh, so now the market has taken full swing and Google has announced and AWS has announced and Azure has announced that their customers are telling them very loud and very clearly that we no longer want tools. We want turnkey applications. So that's clearly where this is going. And so we build applications that do fraud detection, um, AI enabled CRM, customer churn, revenue prediction, next press product, next press offer. Uh, uh, supply chain optimization, fraud detection, what have you, uh, for all these industries. And uh, we have 42 applications today. I suspect in a couple of years, we'll probably have 200. And that's clearly the way this industry is going, that people want turnkey solutions that deliver uh, economic benefit and social benefit quickly. Yeah, it's really great. And as you point out, um, it takes care of a need uh, that otherwise perhaps these organizations would uh, individually have to invest in to to uh, to fill. Uh, much more efficient to have have a group that's uh, spent so so much time and 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 money in order to bring to life these uh, industry solutions uh, that that solve these needs much more easily. Um, that said, the likes of a Boeing or a Bank of America or some of the other companies you mentioned, they also have inside their their uh, four walls a lot of AI talent and data scientists and so on. Um, I wonder, you know, as you think about those organizations that are doing the sort of work directly tied to uh, uh, C3AI solutions, but also more generally speaking, taking advantage of the power of artificial intelligence, what are some of the common characteristics of those organizations? Um, you know, what do you see working well within them? How do you think, think how do you see uh, you know, them building the, the kind of talent internally to be able to, to ingest this appropriately and take action appropriately? The customers, the organizations that we're seeing succeeding at predictive analytics, at uh, say enterprise AI, at large enterprise scale, the Shells, uh, the NGs, the Bank of Americas, the Coke Industries, United States Air Force, um, Tyson's, what have you. Okay, the, 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 these are companies that they failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. They tried to install Watson, they tried to install Predix, okay? They bought the Apache open source of Dupstack, okay? Then, they, then they, they brought AWS or Azure or something else and spent like five years trying to build it themselves and they failed five or six times. They have investments in hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. Some are still trying to build it themselves. No one, I think... You know, I mean, Jamie Diamond, I think, is one of the smartest guys in the world. That being said, you know, he's spending a billion dollars trying to build an AI stack at JP Morgan Chase that 100% for certain has to fail. So virtually all of our customers have tried to do this one, two, three, four, five, six times. And then the CEO steps in and says, you know, I'm sick and tired of this. Okay. And I want some results. And so then they get on an airplane, they come out and visit. 
we put together a plan and we put them in, we, we get them into production. But we're seeing increasingly these are no longer CIO led build it yourself science projects with 20,000 people in Bangalore. Uh, these are CEO led and chief digital officer led initiatives where the um, responsibility reports directly to the CEO. The CEO is involved weekly and he or she wants to see results, wants to see economic benefit, wants to see uh, economic return and wants to see return to the shareholders. I wanted to ask you more generally speaking, Tom, as somebody who's worked with technology executives for decades, as you point out, you've seen the evolution of the function to a great degree as well. And, you know, with your work at Siebel Systems at Oracle at C3AI have been a leading light uh, and, a, and a, a remarkable innovator to facilitate the expansion of uh, value derived from technology across a variety of industries. Now, you, you will also recall that, you know, there were periods of time where uh, the average CEO, you were just actually talking about the counterpoint to the one I'll just ma I'll make uh, uh, here. Um, CEOs didn't necessarily appreciate technology as much as they uh, they could have, should have. Let's call it a decade and a half ago, 20 years ago, something like that. And they leaned on, they erred on the side of buying technology, outsourcing a great swaths of their technology talent, and not necessarily getting the line right on that which is strategic versus that which is not. And you see now a lot, I mean, any, any organization worth its salt, as you point out, is going to have world class partners like a C3A high, like some of the other uh, uh, providers that you talked about. But many of them now have much more of an engineering mindset as well to also think about what are we going to build that is differentiating? And I wonder, again, if you could offer sort of a bird's eye view, Tom, as somebody who has seen this evolution happen, who now, I mean, you are a, one is a true dinosaur if you do not appreciate the, the, uh, the role that technology plays in terms of uh, strategic nature. It's, it's, it's uh, fostering resilience during trying times like those that we've seen in the past several years. One harkens back even to the themes of your book, Digital Transformation, through what I'm, what I'm describing here as well. Talk a bit about your, what you've seen in terms of that evolution, if you would. Well, I think we've gone, we've lived through, you know, three decades of outsourcing. And now we have, you know, all the all the precursors uh, to and met most of our pharmaceutical products now coming from China. Okay, manufacturing coming from China, all of the elements that you need for lithium ion batteries coming from China. And people are realizing, you know, this might not end well. And so we're now going from this major kind of outsourcing uh, effort with, you know, do we have complete dependency, you know, on, on um, uh, TSMC for semiconductors and should things go bad in Taiwan, I mean, the civilized world almost comes to an end. Okay. And so now we're seeing this major kind of undoing of all of McKinsey's advice of the last three decades. Okay. So we're now insourcing everything and the, you know, very much, I think what we saw in even outsourcing of IT, where we would, we're going to give this to an Anderson or we're going to give this to a Deloitte, that's kind of reversing too. And so the organizations that we're seeing who are really leading in this area, like Baker Hughes, Shell, United States Air Force, um, uh, even, you know, DOD, you know, is very much realizing, hey, we need to develop this data science capability internally, okay, and then find the, you know, the proper applications where we can put the application in live quickly and 
use our, you know, our domain expertise, apply that to the, to the development of data science models that we can put live, okay, in these platforms on the Elastic Cloud that we get from AWS or Azure or Google, and then platforms like C3 that allow us to uh, deploy live fast at, at massive enterprise scale. But we are definitely seeing big investments in data science capability and big investments in this new uh, form of professional that we're seeing called the, the citizen data scientist, which is somebody who formerly might have been working with something like Tableau or, or formerly would have been working with an Excel spreadsheet is now is working in Python to build very, very powerful predictive models that we use for uh, disease prediction, drug discovery, uh, predictive maintenance, what have you. And uh, so companies are definitely investing in that technology internally in a big, big way as we power into the 21st century. The last time you and I spoke on the record, Tom, was early in the pandemic. And we talked about um, how you, you gave your own thoughts in those early days of it as to the, the ways in which the themes from your book, which I just mentioned, Digital Transformation, would apply all the more uh, through the course of the pandemic and certainly uh, in the, pa the past uh, nearly three years would prove the, your, your hypotheses correct, all things being equal. It's the, in many ways, those organizations that were further along in their so-called digital transformations were those that were most resilient in their industries. I, I wonder, you know, what, what other lessons do you find through the course of these most unusual times um, in terms of the difference makers for those organizations that have thrived uh, versus those that have not? Uh, during these times, well, I think you know the you know the, you know the the biggest economic effect of the pandemic, in my opinion, it wasn't the pandemic itself; it was the societal and political response to the pandemic. Is it just played havoc with the supply chains, uh, and so the supply chains uh, have been and are just a mess, and people have been you know unable to deliver products to their customers. So now. You know, this has, you know, really accelerated the application of AI to optimize supply chains, understand supply chains, and, and, and um, you know, identify supply network risk before that risk materializes and impedes our ability to deliver. I think now the next thing that we're seeing, you know, the pendulums, the way the pendulum swings, so we have this kind of massive economic expansion that went on the longest economic expansion really in history since 2008. And we have this idea of all this, these kind of weird work structures where everybody is going to work from home in their pajamas and hold two or three full-time jobs and get paid in Bitcoin. Well, we're seeing that pendulum is now swinging in a big way. You know, and at Goldman Sachs, you are back to work. And at Bank of America, you are back to work. And at Twitter, at, at Tesla, you are back to work or you don't have a job. And, and a lot of organizations are finding that, you know, they don't really need those white collar workers who are working from home. So we're seeing just kind of massive, massive, massive layoffs. So I think that socially, what we're seeing in the business community are people getting back to work. If you look at our parking lot, our parking lot has been full for two years. Now, uh, that's to the north side of this building. To the south side of this building is Google's parking lot. Well, Google's parking lot, there hasn't been a car there for four years. Well, if I were to point this camera at Google's parking lot, it's full. Okay, and, and there are seven buses out there. And so something has changed. And um, 
uh, it's changed, you know, the nature of work is changing and it's changing in a way that you would expect uh, as things kind of return to normal. Um, You know, I think that, you know, the next year, two years are likely to be pretty rocky. I think we have this inflation problem. I think we have a recession problem. I think technology markets are going to be very rocky in terms of layoffs and companies going out of business. But net net, you know, when all that cleans itself up, which it will, the world will be a better place. We'll be back to kind of normal standards. And, um, you know, the companies that are strong will be stronger. And the companies that, you know, thousands of companies will go out of business, that human capital will get redistributed. There will be unfortunate pain and unemployment uh, to the people where the effect is, you know, really deleterious and that's tragic, but that's what happens in recessions. And uh, but I think as this thing get winds itself up in in uh, 2023 or 2024, I think we're going to be off to the races. And this news, this new step function we have in information technology related to these trends that we've talked about are going to have a, you know, really boost productivity and accelerate growth on the, you know, as we power out of this. So it sounds like short term is unknowable, but medium and long term, you're pretty optimistic as to the prospects for the U.S. economy and 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 of course companies like yours yours as well. Short term is unknowable and and tough. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know these recessions are ultimately positive events. I mean, they clean up these excesses in the economy. Come on, we saw it in the dot com. You know, we saw it in two thousand eight. Okay, we saw it in nineteen eighty, and. Um, uh, so it's not the first time we've seen this. It's a pretty, it's a pretty well-known cycle. And, uh, you know, you, you get, you know, the craziness will all go away. Everybody will kind of get back to work and, 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 you know, we'll power out of this and it's all going to be good. Tom, what, what motivates you? I, you've, you, uh, your, your reputation is, has been cemented at this point. Uh, and, you know, if there were a business hall of fame, you would be a, uh, a, a member of it, no, no doubt. Um, what motivates you to work as hard as you do at this stage of life? I love what I do, and uh, you know, I've been I've been privileged to have a, had a, had a place at the table, you know, in the information technology business. From you know, when I started, the global business was about two hundred billion dollars. Today, it might be seven trillion, and I've had the opportunity to have a place at the table with you know, with Gordon Moore and with Andy Grove and with Bill Gates and with Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison and kind of pretty much everybody you can think of and the uh, uh, Lou Gerstner. And it's just, a, you know, just been the professional experience of a lifetime. And, you know, whether it was, you know, in the early days of Oracle or the and the growth of Oracle and the early days in the growth of Siebel Systems and the early days and now growth at C3.ai, I've had the opportunity to work with, you know, some of the most talented people in the information technology business. Uh, I love, um, you know, the idea of attracting really talented, motivated, high energy people. I love the idea of, you know, building large global organizations that solve problems. Um, You know, obviously I wouldn't do this if it wasn't my idea of a good time, but uh, this is my good idea of a good time. And, um, you know, we're solving problems that were previously unsolvable. The economic and social benefit of what we're doing today in supply chain problems, in defense problems, in intelligence problems, in precision health problems are economically and socially staggering. 
So it's this is really difficult stuff, really challenging stuff, and uh, in very high impact. So I do this because this is my idea of fun, and I think all of us here at C three are having just the professional experience of a lifetime, and you know we hope to build one of the world's great companies in the process. That's really wonderful. I wanted to conclude by asking you, Tom, as you reflect on your remarkable career, what have been the real secrets to your success, do you believe? What have been some of the difference makers and the extent to which that might be framed as advice to others who might wish to, in their own way, uh, follow in your footsteps? What are some of the suggestions you'd have? Uh, I have always focused on surrounding myself with people who are better educated than I, more talented than I, and I think I've done a pretty good job of that. Okay. And in my case, it might be particularly easy. Um, I'm always focused on preparing for the next recession. So I've seen, you know, the expansions, okay, in the in the eighties, the expansions in the nineties, the expansions, the last expansion. And, you know, I I I I know there's a recession around the corner. Okay, and we're always setting ourselves up for that economic downturn. Because it's the company that is well positioned for that downturn, that has the cash, that has the market share, that has the market presence. Those are the companies that grow and survive and become the market leaders. So while we, I think we've taken advantage of these expansions as they've occurred, as it relates to access to capital, access to markets and building market share, we're always looking for the next downturn. And someplace between, say, 8 and 15 years away, and if you're well positioned for that, you're well positioned. And so I think about that all the time. Well, Tom, Tom Siebel, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a, an honor to speak with you and to learn from you. I, I'm so grateful you would take the time with me today. It's a great pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Thank you.